I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Road. Woo! Woo, I guess. Guess um, what, bitches? I'm still sick. <laughs> I know. It is it is January, which is the black hole for everything. Yes. I hate January. Blue Monday was this past Monday. Yep. Just a nightmare. As Fuck someone January. with seasonal affective disorder, it is incredibly difficult for me to get through this month and next month. So I'm trying my best here. I'm putting on a smile. I'm faking it till I make it. Absolutely. And I don't want to exist these months. I just want to sleep. It's, it's and tough. it is in Chicago. It is what meteorologists, and this is a technical term called colder than a witch's tit. <laughs> um, I am freezing. I am wearing a hood and gloves in my own home. Um, so I look like a old school bum in my own house. But it's you're okay. a cute bum. I am a cute bum. Yes. Before we get started, and I had already kind of uh, told the ladies that I wanted to do this, I just want to get on my COVID soapbox again. Please do. Um, yep. So about, I guess it's been two weeks ago, my husband got very, very sick, tested positive for COVID. Um, he is double vaxxed and boosted and actually boosted very recently. Um, so he would have been probably hospitalized had he not been vaxxed. Um he was sick for a good eight days, and the policies now are that you only have to stay home for five days, and then you can go back to work or school, and that that's bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. was, he the sickest he was, was day five, and my two-year-old tested positive. She can't be vaxxed. Uh, luckily she was asymptomatic and tested positive or tested negative a few days later. So we were very lucky that whatever was in her system cleared out pretty quickly. Uh, Sawyer, my six-year-old had been recently vaxxed with his first vaccine. And I think that was a big part of the reason why he didn't test positive. But so the schools in Mississippi, the policy is what, you know, CDC said, you quarantine for five days after exposure, and then you can come back, but you have to wear a mask for five days. Well, uh, Adam, the first day back, I took him to school. Adam was feeling better, so he took him back the second day. He forgot to put his mask on. Nobody said a word all day at school. Ugh, right. And it's like, okay, so Anyway, get your so goddamn vaccine. These rules. So kids don't get it. And don't give me that bullshit that the vaccines aren't helping because the vaccines are just like the flu shot. They help you from mm-hmm. getting so sick that you wind up in the, the hospital. Exactly. If Adam hadn't been vaxxed, I guarantee he probably would have wound up on a ventilator because he was yeah. that sick. And it pisses me off that people are just... I mean, they do it with the flu shot all the time, too. So it shouldn't surprise me. But get your vaccine. Share important information that's accurate. Don't go to Fox News. But uh, anyway, I'm off my soapbox now. I'm sorry. And kids, no, like, wow. toddlers are absolute nightmares when they just have a little bug. I cannot yeah. imagine a toddler with fucking COVID symptoms. No. Jesus. And, I mean, I've told my sob story on here before. But I was recently 
at a physical therapist appointment and they were asking like, has anything happened to you in the last couple of years to sort of trigger some symptoms I've been having? And I was like, like some major life change. And they're like, it doesn't even have to be that major. It can just be like losing your job. And I was like, oh, so losing your job and your dad to COVID in, a week. in one week, yeah. um, that, that would do it. And I'm like, that's literally the onset of these symptoms, literally. And I'm like, oh, wow. it's almost two years out. Cause it'll be two years in May that I lost my dad and my job all in one week. Mm-hmm. And I'm still feeling the physical psychological effects from this. It's not fun. So even if right. I'm, I'm still living and I'm fine and I knock on wood have not got COVID yet, praise Jesus. Um, but it still affects the people around you and it right. affects their family members. And so, you know, these, what, almost a million people that we've lost, there are a lot of people living with PTSD and physical symptoms and all of this because they're still dealing with those that that tragedy and that trauma of their kids someone. orphans by this there like, are that there lost are entire both of their out. parents mm-hmm. yeah and, and trauma horrible. affects the body I mean, it really does y'all absolutely affects the it body it really does this is the funnest problem i've ever had and yeah. we're all living through a collective trauma right now like yeah. i told my parent the other day i was like this is like the most tense ball uh dodgeball game of my entire life it is like that it front is. line starting to get fed and you're like fuck I'm usually yeah. the one that like hangs out in the back and now I'm there. I'm starting to get pushed to the front and your girl don't like it. I'm yeah. also boosted. So I'm like triple vaxxed, but yeah. like, I don't leave the apartment if I ain't got to. No, I don't either. And you know, people are like, well, go ahead and get it. So you get it out of the way or oh, it's not I'm, the chicken pox. It's not. And, and, and long saying- COVID. They still don't know how that's going to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to say, that's the thing that scares me is long COVID because I know people who got it in 2020 and it's two years later and they still can't taste or smell and they have brain fog and all of this. And they say the, the brain damage you get from long COVID is akin to dementia cool mm-hmm. y'all i think in 10 years we're going to really realize how bad our population this is a mass is disabling up. event it I is mean, it's mass disabling be... it's really scary yeah um i um, don't want this crap y'all don't want this crap please be careful y'all stop going out and licking every doorknob between here exactly Texas. please God. please um, but on a and lighter the... note yes so Adam being sick, he's had to watch a lot of TV while he was in quarantine. And one of the shows he started, what we watched it when it was on the air, but he's just rewatching it. The last man on earth. Oh yeah. Uh, Will Forte okay. is about a man who survives a pandemic. Oh, the no. show came Jesus. out in 2015 and it's a comedy and it's, you know, it's dark, but it's funny too. It takes place in 2020. Oh, Jesus. They Seriously? jinxed us. They fucking jinxed us. So the the Just show the started cubs. in 2015. It's about, you know, the I do. survivors I do. of a pandemic that wiped out pretty much everybody. And it takes place in 2020. I oh shat God. my pants this morning when I saw the little uh, blurb when he was. That's like the Simpsons predicting the future. I and know. you're like, God it's damn so it. Weird. Jesus Christ. Like, there's lots of shows about pandemics, but for it to come out five years before a massive pandemic and be set right when COVID hit just oh, yeah. God. blew my fucking mind. Anyway, on and, to today's and, topic, ladies. Well, Sorry, and I was going to say though, very quick, quickly, yeah. um, 
speaking of COVID, like, um, and I, I shouldn't be talking out of turn because I know we don't know the cause of death, but like, I'm sad that Meatloaf died. No, he did die of COVID. We do. And, and there's news that he didn't, you know, was he was very vocal about about being I mean, anti-vaccine and all on this. the like, record you, with you it. Have to be. Dude. And then he was in his seventies, and he was a chunky boy, and it's like, yeah. honey. Yeah. And then we did lose uh, Louis Anderson. Yeah. They just coming from my childhood. Yeah. Yep. Louis Anderson was a gift. Um, his animated series that came on Saturday morning cartoons was just 90s perfection. Um, if you can find it on the YouTubes, I can't even remember what it was called. I think it was Life with Louis or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like so. that. Yeah. It's brilliant and you should definitely find it and watch it because he was a national treasure. Yes. But yeah, on to this week's topic. Yes. We are covering uh, Native Americans and their burial grounds. And I think this is a um, topic that we all felt some frustration with because, and only because, there is not a lot of information out there because white people are terrible. Yeah, and I got the idea for this episode because I was watching, I love watching those uh, paranormal true story, true and heavy air quotes stories um, of, you know, hauntings and the one that that triggered me the most where I was yelling by myself in my apartment to no one in particular was the story of these two kids, they were kids at the time, they're adults now, so they should know better, um, who had Cherokee grandparents. Everyone except for my family apparently has Cherokee fucking grandparents. <laughs> no, no, you, you don't. don't. There's a whole reason for that. Mm-hmm. I won't go into because it's long. But and then they were in like the Missouri Boot Hill, Southern Illinois area, and we're supposedly seeing a skinwalker. Skinwalkers are Navajo. The Navajo region is the Southwest mm-hmm. your bitch ass with your fake Cherokee grandparents. We're not seeing a Navajo skinwalker in Southern fucking Missouri. What you were seeing was a meth addict. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's not as fun. It's not as sexy, but Southern Missouri, Southern Illinois, it was a meth addict. And I hate that for you, <laughs> but it got me thinking about how many of these white people hauntings are oh this was on a native american burial ground like the entire country is a native american burial ground literally you palm colored asshole (laughs) well i will say i was frustrated at first but then when i actually so i i I think i took a little different approach to it than y'all did uh but once i got into reading about the two stories because i've kind of got two two for one today uh i got really into it so I'm excited. To I'm share. super into my subjects. Like it's really interesting, especially with Chicago history. Right. Um, and there have been like, I looked on YouTube at like the videos of like the entities and shit kind of seen at this location. And it's pretty convincing. Um, so when you guys come up and visit me, uh, because by then it won't be fucking Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll go check it out. It's close to the airport. It'll be fun. Very okay. cool. Well, I am going to kick things off this week, and then after me, I think it's Hannah and Sheena will wrap it up. So here we go, ladies. You ready? Yes. Ready. White folks are trash. (laughs) And I say that as a white folk. 
since before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620, Europeans and those of European descent have seemed to think that they have a right to raid and rob the graves of native and indigenous people. Nothing was off limits. Practically minutes after they stepped off the Mayflower, pilgrims came upon the grave of the mother of Chickatabit, the leader of the Massachusetts tribe. They hoarded it. They stole uh, bare skins from her grave, her wow. recent grave. So needless to say, the natives didn't take too kindly to the desecration of their loved ones' graves. Imagine that. There have been numerous accounts of the violation of indigenous burial sites over the course of American history. But today I'm going to focus on two important incidents that have involved the desecration of Native American burial sites. I'm going to start today with a story that is not substantiated, but knowing the people involved, there's probably some truth to it. So the Apache warrior Geronimo died of pneumonia while a prisoner of war in Fort Sill, Oklahoma in 1919. And this story is just crazy. 1919? 1919. Yes. 1909. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Brain fog, but thankfully not. Yep. Um he like was a prisoner of war for 14 years it was crazy like just look into his story i don't go into details today because it's not about his life it's about what happened after his death so in 2009 on what would have been his 100th birthday his descendants filed a lawsuit against the skull and bones a secret society at yale university Mm -hmm. alleging that they had stolen some of geronimo's remains and displayed his skull in a glass case what sounds about right yeah it does it is believed that in 1918, members of the Skull and Bones Society, including the father of future presidents, George H.W. Bush, well, and grandfather of George W. Bush, Prescott Bush broke into the grave of Geronimo, which is located in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and stole his skull, two bones, and a bridle and stirrups, which were then put on display in the clubhouse that is ridiculously known as the Tomb. Oh my God. And Prescott Bush, this is not even the most evil thing he's done. Read up on him. He's a monster. I'm not surprised. I just. Disappointed. (laughs) I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. It does not surprise me in the least. Yeah. So in 2005, a historian discovered a letter that had been written in 1918 from one member of the society to another that claimed a skull and some horse tack had been stolen from a grave at Fort Sill. In her book, Secrets of the Tomb, author Alexandra Robbins notes that there is indeed a skull on display in a glass case at the entrance to the tomb, and the society's members call that skull Geronimo. Wow. Ugh. Even if it's not Geronimo, it's somebody's fucking it's skull. Well, yes. so completely, this isn't even my, in my notes, but something I came across while I was doing research. Apparently, so when this secret society came about in the 1800s, the guy who founded it had a skull that they had like they made it like their little voting box so anytime they had to do like votes you put your vote in this skull and it went on auction 
Rich white dudes are twenty years weird. ago. Or something so like that. rich people are weird. But I yes, mean, especially rich I, white people. They're I so like weird. skulls, but I would never own a human one. No, I do not want what a real fuck? person. Really? And I'm creepy. That's yeah. sick. It's it's anyway. So also mm. in the suit, Geronimo's descendants, led by his great grandson Harlan Geronimo, asked to have all of his remains, including those at Fort Sill, returned to the family to be reburied in his birthplace near the Gila River in New Mexico, which is where Geronimo was born and where he wished to be buried. Um, a lot of the uh, Apaches that had uh, settled in Fort Sill did not want him moved, so there was a lot of back and forth about that. Um, anthropologists and historians in Oklahoma disputed the claim that the skull had been taken they said there was no record of the grave being disturbed in 1918, which, I mean, come on. America was smack dab in the no middle record of, of the it. First World War. Right. You think anybody was going to make note of a disturbance at the grave of a person whose race has been repeatedly devalued, who was a prisoner right. of war? I'm sure that this could have happened. Oh, yeah. Um, the suit was dismissed in July of 2010, and that's Ew. the last account I have about this lawsuit. Sadly, Ew. Harlan Geronimo died in 2020 Aww. of COVID-19. Jesus. And I couldn't find any information about where he was buried or... Hopefully with his family somewhere. I would hope so. Um so here's a little more on Geronimo and his grave. In 1928, his wooden headstone was removed and covered with concrete with a huge stone monument on top that I think is made out of cannonballs. It's kind of like a, a pyramid oh, shape and there's an eagle on top of it. really fucking cool. Right. I have so, something similar in my story. Yeah, so to exhume his remains or what remains would be really hard to do. So his remains remain at the east creek apache cemetery at fort sill on either side of him are his seventh of nine wives nope. zia who died in 1904 at age 35 from tuberculosis Ugh. and their daughter eva geronimo godley who died at 21 in 1911 mm. Eva was one of the many native people forced to attend a u.s boarding school to assimilate into american oh, culture oh boy and she died in just one year after giving birth to her daughter, mm -hmm. Eveline, or Eveline, who died in infancy. And I could not find a record of Eva's cause of death. I Googled high and low. I was able to find Zia's cause of death uh, by doing that, but I was not able to find any information about Eva. Right. <laughs> but they both have headstones and they're buried on either side of geronimo so at least That's he's nice. got some of his family with me and yeah. again we may come back to geronimo at some point because yeah because that's a fascinating story this story yeah. is fucking fascinating and please um, don't watch the movie where he's played by johnny depp because that shit's yeah, insulting let's, let's, yeah yep. uh so before i get into the next story i want to kind of shout out the main source i use for this portion it's an app academic paper titled remembering slack farm it's written by dr gwen henderson the education director for the kentucky archaeological survey 
Henderson was one of the archaeologists credited with organizing the massive 500 volunteer recovery that took place following this incident. And I think it's important that I give her due credit. One of the other archaeologists. <laughs> Let's start over, shall we? One of the other archaeologists who was spearhead or who spearheaded the effort happened to be her husband and the director of the KAS, David Pollock. Additional organizers include Cheryl Ann Munson of Indiana University and David Morgan, Kentucky State Historic Preservation Officer. So shout out to all of these people, and you're going to find out why in just a moment. Uh, And I'm also including the link to Henderson's paper in our show notes. So I highly recommend that if you have time and you're interested in reading this firsthand account, you check it out. So now on to the Slack Farm incident. It occurred in Uniontown, Kentucky in 1987 when the Kentucky Heritage Council, which is responsible for documenting cultural resources, received a call that there were men digging graves at a Native American burial site located on a local farm, the Slack Family Farm. The farm was under new ownership, so the last Slack had sold it to new people, and looters had taken advantage of that situation by paying the new owners $10,000 for a permit to dig on the property, which had never been allowed by any of the Slacks that owned the property. So, This permit allowed up to 12 men on the property at any time over the course of six months between the fall of 1987 and the spring of 1988. The council called local authorities and Sergeant Miles Hart was sent to investigate. When he arrived, several of the looters accused him of trespassing and demanded that he leave. This was private property. He had no right to be there. Bitch, y'all trespassing. Yeah. yeah. Well, technically they were, but well, anyway, he did, but he returned a few hours later with a warrant and a cease and desist order. Hell yeah. In the early days of the investigation at Slack Farm, authorities would discover the scattered remains of infants, children, and adults. Ugh. Henderson recalls her husband telling her she would have wept at the site of the massacre, and he was right. So this is a very long quote, so bear with me. I, it was a whole paragraph, but it has to be included here. So yeah. in her paper, she wrote, quote, weeks later, I did see it with my own eyes, and he was right. I wept at the destruction. Even now, remembering, it is hard to find words to describe the scene and how they cannot convey the emotional impact. What's to be done now, I thought. Filling the holes back in and documenting what's happened can never, ever put it back as it was. I felt anger, such intense anger. For a long time, history has lain there undisturbed. Then, in an instant, the looters had ripped it to shreds. I wanted to scream at them. How can you do this? No artifact is worth this destruction. But they were not present to listen. Only the evidence of their work was holes, piles of dirt, broken jars desecrated graves Ugh. just Ugh. so sad and so just powerful words yeah so the looters apparently they were only there for what they thought were valuable artifacts marine right. shell gorgets catlinite pipes and copper pendants they threw aside other cherished items of the indigenous people pottery arrowheads animal bones more Basically, these asshats destroyed the history of the people who had once called Slack Farm home. 
<clears throat> excuse me. At one point in her article, Henderson mentions that one of the looters didn't like feeling the remains were looking at him while he was digging. So he would Ugh. use his shovel to, quote, shave off the faces and toss them out of the pit. Wow. Ugh, maybe don't be in there, you fucker. So the intense field work, recovery efforts, really, and documentation of the evidence lasted from February until May of 1988. And in the end, an estimated 650 graves were disturbed by the looters. Mm. The looters were arrested and charged with the misdemeanor of desecrating venerated objects. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I forgot to uh, uh, do That a, sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Do a how do you pronounce this dot com. <laughs> uh, that was the only charge that could be brought against them. The charges were eventually dropped in 1990 due to lack of prosecution. No Jesus. prosecutor would touch it. So they got off scot-free. Of course. Fuckers. The incident at Slack Farm received an abundance of media coverage, including a feature in National Ge- Geographic. The incident would lead to grave desecration being elevated to a felony offense and is also cited as one of the main inspirations for the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which was established to return cultural items stolen from Native burial sites to the descendants or tribes people. However, this is apparently only for graves and sites on federal lands. And since Slack Farm was private property, NAGPRA would not have protected the graves on this farm. So when all was said and done, the remains of more than 900 American, excuse me, 900 Native American men, women, and children were reburied in the pits at Slack Farm as part of a private reburial ceremony led by Chief Shenandoah Shenandoah of the Haudenosaunee, Haudenosaunee, yes, uh, tribe. The remaining artifacts and notes from the Slack Farm incident are curated by the William S. Webb Museum of Anthropology at the University of Kentucky, and the burial site remains undisturbed to this day. And Ugh. that is the story of Slack Farm and the alleged theft of Geronimo's skull by a bunch of white douchebags. Yeah. And then that act that you talked about in the 90s, like that yeah. led to a lot of museums repaint because think about how macabre it is in a museum. To have human remains just out on display, on display for yeah. people to gawk at and take pictures of. And it's, you know, it's ghoulish. It's disgusting. It really and there's and, another one. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Hannah. Well, one of my college roommates who um, is unfortunately deceased now, but she was an archaeology major at Ole Miss and she went to a summer dig Um because Mississippi has a lot of native tribes and they were not allowed to photograph any of the artifacts or any of the remains. They had to draw pictures of everything. Um, And she was an extremely good artist, which is what she did during that summer dig was draw pictures of all the remains and to scale and stuff like that. For this reason of the tribes are like, we don't want pictures of our ancestors' body parts on the internet. And that's yeah. not an a a crazy ask. It's not an no. unreasonable request. I mean, yeah. if you watch 
you know, um, crime shows as much as I do, they always blur out the body out of yeah. respect. I mean, and whether somebody has been dead 200 years or five minutes, yeah, that's a body. You treat it with respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, another story that I saw while I was doing this research is the Kennesaw man. Um, there's not a lot of information, but that was another one that was highly disputed in the courts. Um, I think they estimated his age to be 9,000 years old yeah. and there were tribes people that were trying to get his remains so that they could give him a proper burial right. rather than have him on display in a museum. And right. I believe he was uh, testing revealed that he was most closely related to native tribes that are around today right and so he was given back and uh reburied in an unmarked grave um obviously so people wouldn't go try to steal him but he was um aged to be nine thousand years old right he was one of the oldest uh bodies that's that have been found in north america but it's it's ridiculous and you know that's like yeah that's like Ootsie the ice man i'm like leave him the fuck alone right and then you all like ended up dying in car crashes. I wonder why. Because you you out there touching shit. Stop touching mm-hmm. shit. Yep. All right, Hannah, you ready? All right. Speaking of touching shit. Okay. <laughs> so here we are. So this man is known by his, we're gonna put it in air quotes, Christian name. Uh, because we had a habit back in the day of baptizing people. Um, and then giving them horrifying Anglo names. So we are going to talk about Alexander Robinson, who also went by she, she, Pinquay, or the squinter. And he was the chief of three tribes in the Chicago area. So he was born on Mackinac Island, which is a little island in Lake Michigan, um, just off of the Upper Peninsula. In Michigan, um, I wanted to go on vacation there this fall, but the dearly beloved uh, Tabby had health issues, and so plans changed. But I yes. will be going to Mackinac Island. That's the island where there are no cars, and that yes. really pretty hotel from. And it's haunted as balls. Okay, can I go with you? Because yes, girl, we're going. Our producer Derek. He may kill me for telling this. His one of his favorite movies is Somewhere in Time, and so I watched it and fell in love with the hotel because it's like practically another character in the movie. Yeah, and ever since then I've wanted to go because it's it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And yeah, then I learned there were no cars there, and I'm like, oh, yes, cool, it's okay. gorgeous. And like yes, several of the hotels are haunted. Like Ghost Hunters did like a whole thing on Mackinac. Yeah, yeah. yeah Look, yeah. let's just let's just put that trip on hold until we can all go safely. Exactly. Uh, it'll, it'll be, be our like our no Halloween. Exactly. Oh, I miss oh should we ever tell our podcast listeners the things we did? <laughs> no, because <laughs> nothing our, illegal. Halloween. Nothing, nothing illegal. illegal slightly scandalous yes yes Mackinac Island Mackinac Island um he became a fur trader because that's what you did back in the day um he spoke Odawa Potawatomi Ojibwa or Chippewa English and French Hmm, he helped evacuate survivors of the Fort Dearborn massacre in 1812 uh he was a translator for the Treaty of St. Louis he was a 
Potawatomi chief. And he also negotiated treaties on the behalf of the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Powhatomi. Um, He helped lead Native Americans across the Mississippi River. And he did return to Chicago and kind of live as like a fur trader slash farmer. So he was born on Mackinac Island, like we said, somewhere in the area of 1789. You know, nobody was really keeping track Mm -hmm. of, of things in that area. Um, And he was born to an Ottawa mother and a Scotch-Irish immigrant fur trader father. His father does not stay in the picture, as Scotch-Irish immigrant fur traders tend to not. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. (laughs) So his mom died when they were trying to get to Montreal, Canada. um, And he was baptized at the age of seven months thereabouts they're not sure may 15th 1788 so he was a little bit older of a baby um after his mother passed away he was taken in by the british soldier who served as the governor of Mackinac island daniel robinson and his wife charlotte and that is how he got his last name um he married a menominee woman um and her name is written incorrectly in several places. So uh, she could be Okimawabun, Cynthia, Josephine, or Shashosh. Shashosh. Shashosh? I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Please don't haunt me wherever you are. Um, and her last name was Little Wolf. Uh, Menominee, if you're in kind of the upper Midwest region, is a city in Wisconsin. It was also a reservation. Um, so you will find a lot of the upper Midwest, very uh, native names. One of the streets I take when I go out to the suburbs is Algonquin, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. that was one of the tribes in the area. So they had some kids. They had Okima. And, okay, some names. Look them up. I'm going to fuck them up, and I'm not trying to get that bad juju on me. So, basically, uh, Mr. Robinson married a chief's daughter. Smart move. Mm -hmm. Um, They had some children, including Joseph Franklin Robinson and his daughter, Wakapee, which means white fox, or she would go by Margaret Robinson. So he married into some really powerful families mm-hmm. um, as far as Indian tribes go, which ended with him being the chief of three different tribes. Um, because as their numbers start to dwindle, you start needing to be strategic and you start needing to join forces and kind of, you know, have a united front. So by the time Robinson was 11, now think about what you were doing in 11. For me, it was 1995. Uh, I was as ugly as I'd ever been. <laughs> Everybody's ugly when they're 11. That's true. Um, yeah. Think about that. Just think about what you yeah. were doing with it when you were 11. He was working for a fur trader <laughs> who traded with the Ottawa people in what would become Michigan near the St. Joseph River, which empties into Lake Michigan. Robinson never learned to read or write any European languages. He could speak them, remember, but he never learned to read and write in them. But he kept accurate accounts and characters of his own devising. What were you doing at 11? Playing Mario Kart? He made his own writing system. (laughs) Feel bad about yourself. 
I do. Thanks. Pretty much. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> yeah, Hannah. Basically, you're welcome. I had to feel bad about that. Y'all were coming with me. <laughs> By 1809, Robinson had traveled along Lake Michigan's southern shore to what would become Chicago on behalf of his employer to purchase grain. By 1812, he had built a house on the south branch of the Chicago River at a settlement sometimes called Hard Scrabble, which I love, or the Lehigh Farm or Lee Farm. Not far away, more than a decade later, um, there were more settlements on the river's north bank. So he also uh, sold land to Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sabel, who Lakeshore Drive is now named after and was Chicago's first non-Native American resident. And he would later sell some of the land to John Kinsey, um, who is a big person in Chicago's history. Like I said, he helped with the Fort Dearborn Massacre. He was the treaty signatory of the Treaty of St. Louis, um, which was one of those treaties that were like, no, 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 no. We're going to take your land. We're going to take your land. But you're going to get some good shit for it. And by good shit, they meant um, a reservation. Um, He also had an encampment during the Black Hawk War. Black Hawks are another uh, Chicago area tribe. Also the name of the hockey team. Um, There is a, a big statue of Chief Black Hawk in downtown Chicago, which is an incredibly cool statue. In 1840, Robinson returned to the Chicago area, although he would visit, make visits to Kansas and continue to entertain visiting natives that came to visit him there in Chicago. In 1845, he built a house on the Robinson Reserve um, in what would later become Schiller Park near O'Hare Airport, and family members would also build nearby. He farmed in that area up until their youngest child passed at in 1904 he had become a gentleman farmer and although his children by his first wife remained to the north others moved out of the chicago area um so but his family for the most part stayed in the chicago area um his son david robinson would die as a union private in a military hospital in murfreesboro tennessee during the american civil war But Robinson would tell stories about how he met Abraham Lincoln long before. After the Great Chicago Fire, Robinson returned to the city to view the scene from the Lake Street Bridge, exclaiming, once more, I can see the prairie of the past. Eventually, his youngest child, Marion Robinson Ragour, would become the matriarch into the 20th century. So he saw Chicago go from just the little backwater Mm -hmm. fort built by fur trappers into the city mm-hmm. um like i said he was in uh chicago after the great fire the robinson reserve he's buried at robinson reserve so it's called the robinson woods um it is a nature preserve owned by cook county um the cook county forest preserve district i will say this about chicago is they are very protective of their green spaces and so it's like when me and sheena went through rose hill and there were deer in the middle of a major metropolitan area right so you can still go and 
get these green spaces and have access to these green spaces in a major metropolitan area. So it is called the Robinson Family Burial Ground. Um, It has been closed. Um, The parking lot next to it is closed. They don't allow any further burials of the Robinson family there. Um, So there's no recent graves there. All of them are basically from his, you know, direct descendants. And I think the last grandchild who was there was in 1955 um but it is there and there have been ghost hunters that go and visit this place um it's in a place called park ridge um like i said park ridge is a very cute little place um not far from o'hare um so you can go and visit they rather you not because everything's kind of condemned and you know, they're not doing, you know, tours there or anything. Um, but if you get on YouTube and I will include some of these in the show notes and we'll post them on our social, um, there have been some really neat ghost sightings, um, at the Robinson family burial ground. So, um, yeah, the, the, uh, I know this seems kind of hit and miss because there is not a lot as we have discussed about the Indian places and things and where they were buried um, out in the thing, because that would be admitting we stole things, but the city of Chicago and a lot of its cultural institutions, like the field museum um, and a lot of the different museums and things like that have done an acknowledgement that they are built on native land um, and they acknowledge what land that they're, whose land they're on. Um, they say nothing about giving it back, uh, but they do acknowledge it, which is more than we can get from some people. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, you're taking a flight into O'Hare and you've got some time, go visit the Robinson Woods and, and go see if you can't scare up a ghost or two. Hmm. Creepy. Yeah. Spooky, spooky. <laughs> um, I have a potential ghost at the end of my story, too. Um, They're all connected. Ooh, Concrete slabs, ghosts. <laughs> we love ghosts up in oh this bitch. And, uh, and we touch on a previous podcast um, person that I talked about, too. So there's just a lot. Oh, wow. Hell yeah. yeah. It's all connected. Yes. It goes all the way all to the right. top. Whatever. Um, before I get started, I do want to do a um, quick book recommendation um, because I just read a book um, that is not really related to this subject, but it's sort of related to the subject. Um, it's Covered with Night, A Story of Murder and Indigenous Justice in Early America by Nicole Eustace. Um, it's interesting because it's about... Um, the story, I mean, it's a true story. It took place in 1722. There were um, two colonists who murdered an indigenous man. And the whole book is basically about the fallout from that and how the English settlers and the indigenous, how their views on justice were so different. Um, and and what that meant and how the English, of course, tried to kind of screw over the Native Americans and stuff like that. Um, but it's really cool because like the English, a thing that I'd never really considered um, was sort of the, the differing views on justice. Like the English are more focused on punishment 
and the person who committed the crime, whereas the indigenous are more focused on the victim and making reparations. And it's, it was really interesting to hear from both sides of, um, of the crime and how they viewed one act so differently. It was just really interesting. I will definitely have to check that book out. It sounds very interesting. It is. Yeah. And I wanted to focus on, um, it specifically talked a lot about a native American man named Taquantar and Sali who the English called captain civility, but there, I wasn't sure where he was buried. And then there was a lot of legal, um, red tape around his possible burial site and the man the white man who owns the (laughs) land now and all of this and I was just like I just I'm tired so (laughs) I decided to cover someone whose burial site I visited many times over the years and I've heard a lot of stories about it and I knew that his monument had been changed over the years so I wanted to learn the official story of course thanks to white people there's not much of an official story but we're gonna do the best we can so picture it the land that would eventually become Georgia 1644 Tomachichi, who would go on to help found the state of Georgia and specifically the city of Savannah, was born. Okay. I have to explain why I giggled a little bit because Chichi in Spanish is slang for titties. (laughs) Oh, great. That's why every time we pass the Chichi's restaurant, me and my brother would just burst out laughing. Well, now you know. Apparently, what this means in this man's language, but. (laughs) Now Be you prepared know. to giggle a lot because I'm going to say Tomachichi a lot. <laughs> I'm going to mute myself when I giggle, I promise. Okay. Um, so, of course, there's not a lot known about his early life, um, but it was believed that he was uh, Creek. And from 1715 to 1717, the Yamasee War takes place between Native Americans and British colonists in South Carolina. And the Native Americans were very rightly angry um, because these settlers had come in and taken their land. They were being very unfair, unfair, unfair <laughs> in the fur trade. <laughs> so unfair in the fur trade. Um, <laughs> um, like they had a lot of debts that they hadn't paid and things like that. So they went and attacked and killed a lot of colonists and Good. many other tribes helped the Yamasee in this battle, but not the Cherokee or the Creeks. And for years after this, a lot of the tribes in this area were really divided about how to deal with the colonists. And I don't know if Tomachichi played any role in this war, um, but it was something that really had a big impact on the whole area. So in 1728, uh, he created his own tribe, the Yamacraw, um, with about 200 lower creeks and Yamasees. Um, and the people who formed the Yamacraw had broken with their respective tribes after disagreements on how to deal with the settlers, basically. Uh, and the Yamacraw settled on the Savannah River Bluffs, which was near both their ancestors' final resting place and some English traders to South Carolina. Because, you know, ideally, they were getting some stuff from the traders, you know, and the traders right. obviously were learning from them and getting stuff from them. And basically, the story I'm about to tell you to me feels very, very friendly and whitewashed and nice and i can't believe it's all this puppies and rainbows and sunshine 
but I think it must have been to some degree too. Um, anyway, we'll just get into it. So in February 1733, General James Oglethorpe and the first 114 colonists from England arrived on the Yamacraw Bluff to found the colony of Georgia. So they basically come up on where the Savannah River Bluffs are. Um, if you've been to Savannah, you know, the whole city is sort of sitting on that bluff and down below is the river where River Street is, where a lot of people go get drunk, which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there, done that. Um, Tomachichi, um, if you notice, as I said, he was born in 1644. This is 1733. He's, he's an older man. He's elderly. He's in his 80s by this time. Um, and I hate that I don't know so much about his life until he's in his 80s. Alas. Um, but he was older. He'd been a chief. He was very experienced with dealing with colonists. And I've read somewhere he at first initially was sort of violent or wanted or threatened violence. But then I've also read, no, he was pretty well like, let's be friends from the get go. So I don't know. Either way, I think from from everything I've gathered, I think he wanted to be friendly with them, but he wanted to be cautious because he knew, obviously, that they could screw him over. Mm-hmm. Um and then about a month after they arrived, he visited with Oglethorpe and eventually the two of them with um, an interpreter named Mary Musgrove, they drafted a treaty allowing Oglethorpe to establish the city of Savannah and Tomachichi and his tribe to benefit from trading with them. Um, quick note about Mary Musgrove. She was... Um, I want to say half British and half Native American. Um, she was an interpreter and helped do a lot of these deals and i would love to do a story on her eventually but i don't know where she's buried i tried to find that and i could not so i'm like curses anyway she sounds like a really cool lady um anyway um so of course if you read anything about native americans you know that sort of exchanging gifts um or wampum things like that like it's a big big deal for them and i really love that idea um but they exchanged gifts. Tomachichi and Oglethorpe exchanged gifts. Tomachichi gave Oglethorpe buffalo skins with an eagle and feathers painted on it. And then Oglethorpe gave Tomachichi European style clothes. Why would he want that? Uh, cloth, gunpowder, tobacco, and pipes. I can see him wanting that more than, oh, here, wear our clothes. Right. <laughs> Ew. Anyway, um, <laughs> but Tomachichi was in uh, such a huge, huge, huge part of the founding of Savannah. Um, he served as mediator between the Yamacraw and surrounding tribes and the British colonists. Um, and he helped them build roads and, and kind of taught them what they were doing. Um, I think the British, I, I may be speaking out of turn, but I kind of get the feeling that the British would have probably failed had it wouldn't if it wasn't for Tomatichi and his people. Um, More than but likely. I think he really helped them so much. Um, but he was such sort of a big hit with Oglethorpe and, and with everyone that actually Tomatichi, his wife, some family members, and a couple, like a delegation from the Yamacraw traveled to England in 1734 with Oglethorpe. Um, Oglethorpe kind of needed to go back and tell his bosses, the king and queen, what he'd been up to. And like, this is our report card, kind of. Um, and he took um, Tomachichi with him to sort of do this. And it was, I mean, that's sort of a big deal for a Native American man and his family to go over to England. Um, 
He met with King George II and Queen Caroline, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Parliament, and the Georgia trustees. Um, he asked them for help, too. He was like, hey, help us out with some trading. Um, education was a big deal to him. He wanted his tribe educated. So he's like, hey, help us pay for that. And they were like, cool, okay. They just kind of fell in love with Tomatiji. They just thought he was a really cool guy. Um, I'm sure there's a more scholarly way to say that, but that's basically <laughs> that's how we're going to say it. Yeah. Um, and then when he returned back home to Georgia, he met with the Lower Creek chieftains to convince them to ally with the British, basically like, hey, let's get all we can out of this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but he did in 1736 oversee the establishment of a school for the Yamacraw with the help of Benjamin Ingram, who was a friend of John Wesley of um, Wesley, like Wesley Methodist Church. Um, if you've ever seen like a Wesley, I think it's Methodist church, um, because he was a big deal in Savannah and I think was kind of a jerk, but, um, <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. Him. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Super religious white guy is a jerk. What really? Um, but yeah, Shocked. there's, I know he's got a statue in one of the squares in Savannah. So he was like a big deal there and, and all that. Um, but it, that statue is also supposedly haunted, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so <laughs> Oglethorpe and, and Tomachichi basically became really good partners. I mean, they just worked really well together and they respected each other. They often asked each other for advice and they also often traveled together to meet with local leaders to discuss land and boundaries and all this kind of stuff. Uh, they had planned for one of these working trips in 1739, but Tomachichi fell ill and couldn't travel. And he died on October 5th, 1739. Um, I've seen some historians believe he was younger than 90, but I've also heard he was about 95. Um, so he, he lived a good long life. Good for Tomatichi. Very good. Yeah. Um, Oglethorpe was traveling when he died, but when he got home, he learned about it and was just very upset. So he held a military funeral for him and he served as a pallbearer. And Tomatichi actually asked to be buried, not with his ancestors, but in the city he helped found. So he was buried in Wright Square in Savannah. And if oh. you've ever been to Savannah, um, the whole downtown historic district basically is made up of a grid pattern with 24 squares. Um, 22 of them have survived. Um, and Wright Square is still there. Um, but it's really cool the way it's done. Like, it's just, it's so easy to navigate and it makes it really pretty. Um, and Wright Square was the second square that was established there. Um, and initially a pyramid of stones, I think Lori, you mentioned a pyramid of stones mm-hmm. in your story, um, was placed on his gravesite as was keeping with the Native American tradition. But of course, at some point that was destroyed. No one's yeah. really sure how the last mention of it was 1759. And some people think that it might've been torn down or destroyed sometime after the revolutionary war. Um, no one's really sure. But in the early 1870s, another monument, like a big planter, was erected there. And not for Tamachichi, just as a decoration. They um, had put these planters up in other squares, and so they were basically matching. Um, But then that monument was removed to make way for a William Washington Gordon monument 
honoring the founder of the General of Georgia Railroad and the grandfather of Juliet Gordon Lowe, founder of the Girl Scouts. Oh, So if y'all remember Nellie and Willie Gordon from my ghost episode where they loved each other so much and uh, he came back to get her in death. Okay. Well, this is who I'm talking about. Um, So this was her father-in-law, Nellie's father-in-law. Okay. um, That they're going to build this huge monument to. And like the city was working with the central of Georgia railroad. I think the company was paying for it, but a lot of people were ticked off because they're like, dude, that's where Tamachichi's buried. And you're going to put this monument to this white guy right on top. And I mean, this is the late 1800s and yet everyone's ticked off. Right. <laughs> They're like, that's Good not for cool. them. Yeah. I was, I was very surprised to hear that there was some outrage. And of course, a lot of people were like, oh, just put it up there. Who cares? Um, but anyway, um, Nellie though, um, although I'm sure she did love her father-in-law was upset that then this means there's no monument at all for Tamachichi, and he had such a um, pivotal role in creating the city of Savannah in the state of Georgia. So she was bound and determined to get one for him, and she did. She was the first president of the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in Georgia. <laughs> I love the word dame. And colonial dames. Colonial dames. I'm like, that's the whitest thing I've ever heard of, but I kind of like the word dames. Um, anyway, so she got the group together and she's like, okay, we're going to get a stone for Tomachichi. So they go to the stone mountain company, which was outside of Atlanta and said, Hey, we need something for this native American chief who helped basically found where we all are. And, um, they gave them a huge granite boulder. It is huge. It's still there to this day. And there is a decorative copper plate on this boulder. And it says in memory of Tomachichi, the Maiko, I think I'm saying that right. It means chief of the Yamacraws, a companion of Oglethorpe and friend and ally of the colony of Georgia. This stone has been placed here by the Georgia Society of Colonial Dames of America, 1786 to 1899. Uh, the Stone Mountain Company, which surprised, su- supplied this granite boulder, wanted to donate the stone for Tomachichi, but the dames insisted on paying. And so Stone Mountain sent them a bill for $1 oh my God. <laughs> payable on the day of judgment. And oh. Nellie wrote back and said the dames would be entirely too busy on that day. And she sent them a dollar in the mail. Oh. They were square. Good for her. It's yeah, cute. It is. Um, and then the Georgia Historical Commission later placed a large marker on the square honoring Tomachichi. It tells his as much as his life story as you can tell which is basically his 80s and 90s and then savannah's tamachichi federal building and u.s courthouse was named in his honor it is also on that square um in september 2021 so just recently a 20 foot tall bronze statue of tamachichi was erected at millennium gate museum in atlanta um there are plans to move it to another park in vine city where it will join statues of other Georgia peacemakers like Martin Luther King Jr. It sounds like he deserves a place there along with MLK. Yeah. Um, But to wrap up, um, to get a little spooky, um, and this is just a fun fact to know and tell, Wright Square in Savannah is also known as the Hanging Square, um, even though some historians debate that. Supposedly that is where initially they would hang 
um, the prisoners and, and the, the, the bad folks in Savannah. Um, this is famously where, and a lot of people have heard this story and I've heard it. It seemed like sometime last year, every podcast did this story. And I was like, wow, I can never touch it then because God, everyone's covered it. Um, the story of, and I'm going to super summarize this very, very briefly. An Irish indentured servant, Alice Riley was hanged in Wright square in Savannah because she and another indentured servant who she may or may not have been romantic with killed their master. Um, and she was supposedly the first woman executed in the state of Georgia. This was in 1735. So literally oh, wow. two years after the, the, the founding of Savannah and Georgia. Um, supposedly this square is super haunted. I have heard all kinds of stories about it that you'll see Alice running up to you because see she was pregnant. And so they wanted to wait for her to have her baby. And then as soon as she had it, they killed her. Oh God. Um, and the baby died a little bit after she died too, but, um, Imagine that. I know supposedly you'll see like a woman running up to you saying, where's my baby? Where's my baby? Um, but they also say, if you walk around Tomachichi's boulder saying his name three times, he'll appear or some <laughs> crap. Like there's always some kind of local legend. There's so many, I love Savannah and there's so much fascinating history there, but there's also a lot of lore. That's just like, that's a cute story. But yeah. That's not true. <laughs> um, I mean, if anyone's going to haunt you, it's going to be an Irish immigrant. We are like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, and I think if I'm not mistaken, that is the square too, where no Spanish moss grows. And if you know Savannah, Georgia, you know, there's Spanish moss everywhere in that city, but there's none on that square. Hmm. Um, supposedly Spanish moss won't, won't grow where innocent blood has been shed. And maybe Alice didn't kill the guy. I think Alice should have <laughs> killed the guy. He was a jerk, <laughs> right? Um, but <laughs> I think there are other squares with no moss too. So it's like, um, um, not sure about this either way i don't know about the hanging square thing i will maybe look into that for future stories but that is the story as i know it and as i could find out about tamachichi who worked to give us the beautiful city of savannah georgia oh i love it hey. yeah We'll have to take a road trip to savannah someday i've never been absolutely Can we please because i've taken almost every ghost tour there um, I know the good ones. I know the bad ones. I know which ones I want to take again, even of the good <laughs> and the bad. I can take you to every spooky place ever. I, I'm obsessed with Savannah. I'm ready. Very I, cool. I, I did know that. <laughs> I love it so much. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> beautiful and it is creepy and there's so many good cemeteries. Oh my God. Okay. Anyway, Join us next week. We are going to kick off February and Black History Month with some Black excellence. Yes. Um, so we are very excited to bring you those stories. We are. Indeed. Yeah. And if you'd like to leave us a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts. Um, and you can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod. Or you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. Yeah. So come back for more next week. Yes. And get your vaccine stop looking every doorknob and stay inside your house please. exactly be safe please act like normal people all right bye, bye. bye.